Well, hello, Christ Chapel, and hello to all of you joining us at the West Campus, South Campus, Converge, Hive, everywhere, Internet Campus. So glad that you've chosen to join with the Christ Chapel family as we worship our Savior today. Uh, For those of you who are in Texas, I just wanted to uh, tell you something very quickly. Uh, We are certainly thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy uh, in our country, that we can come and worship the Lord whenever we please, uh, however we please. Uh, This next week on Tuesday, there's going to be an amendment that is voted on uh, regarding religious liberty. And I would advise you, please, if you live in Texas, go research uh, what that is, put a biblical grid over that, and then go and vote your conscience according uh, to the scriptures. We certainly don't take for granted that we can worship freely and we want to continue to have that freedom. And so uh, please uh, do that and be advised that's coming up uh, this next week. Okay, uh, this past week I wanted to tell you about an article I was reading. It's nothing that's going to blow your mind because you've probably seen some of these articles before and it was things that I wish I had learned when I was younger. Have you read those articles before? I mean, there are tons of them out there and you can go and find plenty of them that list 50 different things that people wish they had learned when they were younger. And the article that I was reading had uh, things in there. They had age old axioms, you know, like I wish I'd learned that just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it right. You go, okay. I I wish that, you know, I had learned that don't judge a book by its cover. Okay, those age old things in there. There were some, some kind of newer ones in there like, you know, no is the most powerful word in my vocabulary. You know, you, you've heard some of these things before, but it got me to thinking, what are those things that I wish that I had learned when I was younger as a Christian? What are those things that I wish that I had learned a long time ago uh, in my walk with Christ? And one of those things that I wish that I had learned, and I think that I'm still learning today, is this, that Christianity is not about what I do for God, but it's about what God does for me. That's the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is not what I do for God or what I can do for God or what I have done for God, but it's what has God done for me? What has God done in me? What has God done through me? That's the essence of it, and here's why I wish I had learned that, and I continue to learn it, when I was younger, because when I was younger, I used to think that my relationship with God was 100% dependent upon me that it was all about if I was good. I mean, that's, that's essentially what my Christian definition was growing up. I grew up in a, a great home, loving parents. They always took me to church. And so I thought that I was a Christian because I did good things. Because I, I didn't cuss like the other fourth graders or you know whatever they, they were doing or I didn't steal one of those cartons of milk that are almost impossible to open. I thought, that's what makes me a Christian, right? And it wasn't until I was 16 years old that I began to hit a turning point, and that's when I came to know Christ and his grace for me, when I realized it's not about me being good enough, because I'll never be good enough. I'll never perform well enough. I will always slip up somehow. And my relationship with God is not based on what I do for him, but based on what he's done for me. I wish I had learned that 
earlier in my life because once that began to take root in my life, that's when I began to see the fruit in my life that was real, that was genuine, that was authentic. That's when I began to see the peace, the joy, the contentment that wasn't manufactured based on the latest CD. Yes, that was, those were around when I came to know Christ. Based on the latest CD that I bought or the cool jeans that I got that everybody else was wearing or, or the, the fact that this, this girl liked me. It wasn't based on circumstances. It was based on who God was and who I was to him. That radically changed my life. And the reason why I continue to throw that caveat in there of it's something I continue to learn is because I think it's something we will always continue to learn and always struggle to grasp is that it's not about what I do for him, but it's about what he does for me. And the more that I can lean into that, the more that I can connect to that, the more genuine fruit we see in our lives, the fruit that we want we, we want to see his genuine contentment, peace, and joy, and love manifested in and through our lives. We don't want things to be uh, manufactured artificially. None of us want that. We, we, none of us want to live off a of camp high to camp high to camp high. None of us want to live uh, on a Sunday shot that fades away on Monday. We want something that's lasting. We want something that's real. We want something that's organic, that's authentic. And that's what Jesus offers us in John chapter 15. So if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 15, please. If you're opening one of those blue Bibles uh, underneath your seat, it's page 901. You do need a copy of the scriptures because we're gonna read through this entire section uh, together that will not come on the screens. I want you to see this for yourself. Again, if you do not own a Bible, we will give you a Bible. Jen and I will buy you a Bible, but we have free Bibles here we will give to you. You have to interact with the Word of God yourself, and I think that'll be evident in what we're talking about today. As we continue our series called Poured Out, remember Jesus is pouring out his heart to his disciples on the night before he's betrayed and crucified for the sins of the world, past, present, and future. And he's pouring out his heart to them only at uh, first, he started off in John chapter 13 in service. Remember, as he washed their feet, then he poured out his heart saying, as a good father does, I want you to love one another. When I'm gone, love each other. Get along with one another. Just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. And then in John 14, he talked about how he could tell their hearts were troubled because they had to he had told them that he was going to leave. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I have a plan. Remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And then he gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit that he says, I will send another helper to you. Jesus was a helper that walked with them in the flesh. Now the Holy Spirit is the helper that walks with every disciple. You, me, them, as, they, as the Holy Spirit indwells us and reminds us of all the things, brings to remembrance all the things that Jesus has taught us and guides us in the way that we should go. That's the helper available to us. He's pouring out his heart into us. And in John chapter 15, we're gonna find that he's pouring his heart into his disciples so that we would bear his fruit. That's what John chapter 15 is about. He's pouring his heart into us so that we would bear his fruit. 
And we get this idea because it, we come upon this analogy that he's going to use of this fruit bearing, probably because of the change in location of where he is talking to his disciples. Remember, we've been in the upper room, this upper rented room that the disciples and Jesus were celebrating the Passover meal in because they had all come to Jerusalem. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They all came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast together. So they're in this rented room celebrating this Passover feast together. That's why we call it the upper room discourse. You've heard me use that term before. But then at the end of chapter 14, look, look at what it says. At the end of chapter 14, he says, rise and let us go from here. Rise and let us go from here. Now, where are they going? So if you look at this map, in the lower left-hand corner, you can see it says the traditional site of where the upper room may have been. So that's the lower left-hand corner. If you look up, there's a tiny gray, I don't know what shape that is. Uh, I'm not a mathematician or geometrist, if that's even a word. But uh, those, that is where Gethsemane is. You see Gethsemane? Can you tell me yes? Okay, great. You see Gethsemane? Great. Kidron Valley is right next to Gethsemane. What we know is in John chapter 18, they end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they are trekking their way diagonally. It's almost northeast from the upper room to Gethsemane. So when he says, rise, let us go from here, they're leaving the upper room. They're going to cross the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's why that's important. Because of the terrain that they would have been going past, they probably would have gone by a vineyard. And so they're going by these different places, and Jesus stumbles upon, not stumbles upon by chance, but this vineyard. Also, some commentators think that there would have been uh, this great picture of a vineyard on the temple gate, which may, may be, maybe not, I don't know. But I think he's going through there and, and he comes across this vineyard and he uses this analogy of, hey guys, let me tell you what the essence of this Christian life is going to be as you have a helper. And as I pour my life into you, here's what I want. I want you to bear my fruit. And he tells them that in John chapter 15. So I just wanna read John chapter 15, verses one to 11 with you. So if you will, just follow along with me because I want you to, to grasp the analogy as a whole before we break it down in, into pieces, okay? So John chapter 15, look at beginning in verse one. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener or the farmer. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. Verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. Now, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so therefore prove to be my disciples. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, then you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. And these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. May God bless the reading of his word, and may our hearts be open to hear from him. So Jesus gives this analogy to the disciples about this vineyard. And I want to tell you the main players, and this is on your sermon notes, just so that you you understand. The first main player is Jesus. Jesus is the vine, but he's not only the vine. He says he is the true vine. And this is consistent with things that he has said throughout the gospel of John when he says, I am the true light, I am the true bread, I am the true vine. I am the real, the genuine, the authentic, the OG. You're awake. He is the one. He's the one that they have been waiting for. Why does he say he's the true vine? Because in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people who were supposed to be living by his commands, bearing his fruit, they never produced good fruit. They always produce corrupt fruit. It never was consistent with the life lived under the sovereign rule of God. In fact, they're condemned by every major prophet in the Old Testament of you're supposed to be the, God's true vine, and you're not. You're not producing the fruit that shows that you're connected to him, abiding in him, living by his commands. And so Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I'm connected to him and I will bear the fruit that shows that I am obeying his commands, just as he said there in verse 10. So that's why Jesus says, I am the true vine. The second player are the disciples. The disciples are the branches. Those disciples are the branches. Branches are meant to connect to the vine. Their life is directly connected to the vine. And branches bear fruit. Vines bear branches, branches bear fruit. You understand how this goes. But the disciples are not the only branches. The branches are any branches that connect to the vine. That's you, that's me. We are his branches because we are his disciples. And then the third player there is the father. God the father, he says, is the vine dresser, which I think is a weird term but it just means he's the farmer or he's the gardener is is a more lower shelf way to say it that I can understand. He's the one who wants to cultivate this good fruit and he is the one who is protecting the vine, protecting the disciples, making sure that they bear the most fruit because isn't that what every gardener wants? Fruit. I mean, if you're a gardener and you have a garden that doesn't bear any fruit, you're not much of a gardener. That's what you want to grow the things that you've planted. You want to see those things happen. He is sovereign and in control of the fruit being born in his vineyard. In fact, he has this purpose statement here in verse eight, if you look back at it. In verse eight, Jesus says, and by this my father is glorified. How do we make much of God? It's that you, the disciples, bear much fruit and therefore prove to be my disciples. What God wants from his disciples, from his branches that are connected to the vine, is to 
bear his fruit. Now, fruit is mentioned here eight times. In these first 11 verses, eight times. And I'm gonna mention a couple of those things for emphasis, just as I count these words. It's just a part of observation so that you don't miss the point of this passage. So he wants us to bear his fruit. That's how, that's how God is glorified. That's how we know, we prove, we authenticate ourselves as his disciples is when we bear his fruit. How do you know that you're not a real deal disciple? How do you know if you are? Are you connected to the vine? I wanna show you what that process looks like as we break this down that I know will be elementary for some. But let me tell you, I still have not grasped this. I think it's gonna be a great reminder for those who say, yeah, 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 I know it. But you're gonna, Lord willing, I've been praying that you feel Jesus, God's spirit reaching out and drawing you closer to him. But for some of you, this is gonna be revolutionary because you've lived your Christian life based on what you can do for God and your relationship with him has gone up and down based on your performance. And that's not what it's about because the essence of the Christian life is about what he does in you, through you, and for you, okay? So I wanna break that down and then I'll give you some applications here at the end of our time. So if we are to bear his fruit, to bear Jesus' fruit, we first must be connected to him. You must be connected to him. There's no way that we can bear fruit if we're not connected to the vine. I know this is simple. I know this is elementary. This is like Vince Lombardi holding up the football. You know, this is a football team. But we've got to get this. You've got to be connected to him. Look at verses three and four. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You see, something that you've got to understand here is the way we are connected to Christ is because we've been cleansed by Christ. See, this word that he uses in this concept here of being cleansed by Jesus is the same word that he used when he was washing their feet. When Peter said, no, 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 you don't wash my feet, Jesus. And he says, listen, if I don't cleanse you, you have no part with me. And so Jesus cleanses us to connect us. How does he cleanse us? He cleanses us from our sin. Because remember, sin is what keeps us apart from a holy God. And unless we are washed clean of our sins by the sinless sacrifice of Jesus, his blood, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. If he doesn't shed his blood to cleanse us from our sins, we cannot be connected to the vine. But he connects us because he cleanses us. That's why he tells them, you're already connected because you're already cleansed by your faith in me. And that's, that's revolutionary for you because, listen, what we try to do to connect with God is clean ourselves up. We try to cleanse ourselves and say, okay, God, am, am I acceptable to you now? And he's going, hey, just come to me and let me cleanse you. Let me forgive you of your sins. Abide in me. Come, come to me. 
You see, it's not about what you do. He doesn't say, clean yourself up first and then I will accept you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary of trying to cleanse yourselves and you'll find rest for your souls. You'll find rest in me because he connects us by cleansing us. And so when he he cleanses us and he connects us, that's when we can begin to bear fruit. But if you're not connected to him, you cannot have the power or the life flow through him. This is, this is nothing crazy, but you, would, you can't imagine how many times this, this happened. I'll give you a, an example. Let me give you an everyday analogy here, because I know not many of you are vine dressers. A couple years ago, Jen and I bought a, you know, the, a smart TV, one that's supposed to connect with the internet, you know, so you don't have, you know what I'm talking about. We bought one of these things, and I could not figure it out. Could, couldn't get it connected to the internet, and I'm not technologically savvy. So I have to call the company and try to figure it out, which is just annoying. But anyway, I call them. Finally get somebody on the phone. You would guess it was probably about an hour that it took to get somebody on the phone. But finally I get somebody on the phone, and I tell them the problem. You know what the first question is that they ask me? Is your TV plugged in? It was plugged in, okay, it was. But I thought, they're asking that question because there have been enough times where people have called in and said, I cannot connect my TV and it hasn't been plugged in that we need to remind this customer to plug the TV in. Christian, are you plugged in? You will have no life apart from him. And you sit there and you wonder, why is life not working? Why do I not feel this power of Jesus in my life, this peace, this contentment, this joy? Maybe you're not connected. Maybe you're not plugged in. Maybe you're trying to connect to other things to find life, the stuff, the experiences, the friends, the relationships, the drive, the ambition, and none of those things are producing the life that Jesus tells you here because you're plugged into the wrong things. You're you're not connected. You're never gonna get out of those things what Jesus promises because you're not plugging into Jesus. If we're gonna bear his fruit, we have to first be connected to him. And then after we're connected to him, the process continues. See, to bear Jesus' fruit, we don't only need to be connected to him, then we will will be pruned by him. And this is the painful part that no one likes to talk about. But we will be pruned by him. A part of the fruit-bearing process is always pruning. Look at verse two. Jesus tells them, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he's going to take away. And every branch that does bear fruit He prunes, why? So that it will be more fruitful. A part of the fruit-bearing process is pruning. And those who are gardeners, you know this, and I am not, but you've got to prune those things. And there's two particular pruning processes that, that usually go on in this region of the world as I've understood. The first is in early February, March, and that's where you cut off all the dead stuff. All the stuff that's dead, the dead wood, you get out. 
And then the second part of the pruning process comes a little bit later when all of these little blossoms uh, begin to bloom on, on these vines. But you know that they're not gonna bear fruit and they're just little distractions and so they trim those things off. Why? It's because it's trying to funnel all the life into the branch that's going to bear the fruit. You don't need dead weight and you don't need distractions. And how applicable is that for us in our own Christian life? That what God is trying to do as a good heavenly father, when he prunes us, is to get dead weight out of our life that is always going to drag us down or he's gonna trim away the distractions in our life. And that's a painful, painful process. And I, and I need to say two things here when I talk about pruning. First, I I don't believe that every painful thing that happens is God's direct act of pruning. There are sinful, awful, evil things that happen in our world. It's a result of sin and brokenness and God will judge it and God can redeem it one day. I I wanna say that. Second, I also wanna say when we talk about this pruning process, some people jump to verse six and they talk about the loss of salvation. This is not what Jesus is talking about. I do not believe you can lose your salvation once you are in Christ, you are in him forever. I think what he's talking about here in verse six is he's talking about Judas. That Judas was an imposter who was dead weight, who had not believed in Jesus, who went off and that's what he's talking about there. So it's those professing believers who are not really believers. That's that's what he's talking about in verse six. But we all know it's true, this painful pruning process in our life where, where God begins to prune things and you go, ah, that hurts. That that was a good thing, right? Yeah, but it wasn't best. It wasn't the best thing in your life. And so often we get consumed with distractions and those things begin to deviate our lives away from the vine. And he's drawing us back to him saying, I gotta cut that off, I gotta cut that off, I gotta cut that off. And it it, it may ruin your five or 10 year plan, but he's got a better plan. He's got a better plan for your life that you would bear much fruit. And every time he prunes something, I want you to remember why he's pruning. It's because of what he says in verse two. Why is he pruning? To bear more fruit. You see, this is what helps me understand what what James is talking about when James chapter one, when he's talking about, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. How in the world can he consider it joy? Well, first, I think it's because what he goes back to here is that I'm not being pruned if I'm not bearing fruit. If I'm being pruned, if you're being pruned, you are bearing fruit. You go, okay, that's a positive thing then. That's a good thing. Because so often we look at at pruning as, as guilt, as I've done something wrong. And certainly God disciplines those he loves, but he also prunes those he wants to bear more fruit. And so take solace in that. Take comfort in that, Christian, that if you are feeling the knife, if you're feeling those pruning shears on your life, it's because you are bearing fruit and he wants you to bear more fruit. 
And then finally, after this painful pruning process, and it's important to keep in mind what he's trying to do, because to bear Jesus' fruit, we need to remain in him. You've got to remain in him. This word remain is in here 10 times uh, in the first 11 verses, 10 times. Again, I don't want you to miss the point of this. Remain, remain, remain in him. In verse five, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides, or another synonym for that is remains in me and I in him, then that's the one who bears a lot of fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Remove any branch from from the vine. Go to the grocery store, get some grapes. See how long those things stay alive apart from the vine. Those have been removed. They're not gonna last too long. Same way, we won't last long if we're not connected and remaining in Christ. You've got to remain in him. That's his point here because he says, apart from him, you can do nothing. Do you know that as soon as those grapes are cut from the vine to start heading to your local grocery store, do you know the process that begins? Rotting. You're like, thanks, that's very uh, appetizing, you know? Can't wait to go home and eat. But essentially, that's, what, that's what's happening. You want to eat them before they go rotten, but there's no life left in those things. The same is true for us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Do you believe that? Oftentimes, I don't. I think I can live my own life apart from Jesus. I think I know my ways best. I think I can find peace, satisfaction, happiness, joy, friends, great relationships, status, success, all those things by myself. My life is good the way that I seek it out. And he goes, yeah, that's nothing. It's gonna rot. It's gonna ruin you. And so we must remain in him. And so here is the point. Jesus is pouring his heart into his disciples so that they would abide in Christ to bear his fruit. Abide in Christ to bear his fruit. I know it might seem counterintuitive to you because I started off talking about how the essence of the Christian life isn't about what you do for God, but what God does for you, in you, and through you. And there's a very passive aspect to all of this, which is 100% true, and I'll go through that. But the active part that, that he asks you to partake in is to remain in him to stay connected to him, to not walk away from him, to not turn your back on him, to to, to stay dependent upon him. Abide, the way I always remember what that means is abode. An abode is where you dwell. It's where you stay. It's where you find safety. It's where you find shelter. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they're safe. It's where we dwell. We've got to abide in Christ. So in order to abide, here's how you do that. Three quick applications. First, cling to Christ's unconditional love as essential for your life. Cling to his unconditional love as essential for your life. You know, what, fi- what, what pushes us 
and deceives us into thinking that we can find satisfaction or love or joy or happiness in other places because we forget about the unconditional love of God available to you constantly, always. And when we forget about that, we go, oh, I'll get it over here and I'll get it over here and I'll get it over here. You've got to cling to him. In verse nine, he says, as the Father has loved me. This is Jesus. As the Father loves the Son, so has the Son loved you. So abide in his love. If, if that doesn't rock our worlds, then you need to read it again. The same love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that the Son has for you. May we go back to that when life isn't going the way we hoped or thought or we expected and know that the love that Jesus has for us is the same the Father has for the Son. Abide in his love. You've got to cling to that. You know, in thinking about this picture of the vineyard and the, and the, and the grapes, when you, when you look at a grape, what is a grape doing? It's, all it's doing is holding on. It's clinging. It, 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 is, it is utterly dependent. It's doing nothing else. Gravity is pulling on that grape. The elements are hitting it. Rain, wind, snow. And all that grape's doing is going, I'm holding on. And sometimes that's all you can do. And that's all he wants you to do is to cling to him. Second, the reason why you're gonna need to cling to him is because you need to persevere through the pain of pruning by obeying what you know. Persevere through the pain of pruning by obeying what you know. Of the adjectives that have used to describe my personality, patient is not one of them. And I'm especially not patient when things are painful. And I'm sure you aren't either. We all wanna rush through the pain. And sometimes in the pruning process, the reason why I brought up the seasons is because sometimes there are pruning seasons and you can't rush seasons. I mean, if we could, Texans would rush summer every single year and you can't rush it. Seasons are seasons and they take time. And the good thing is there's a change of season that's to come. And you've gotta be patient through those pruning seasons and the way that you're patient is just obey what you know. In verse 10, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. You see, the, the impossible task there in verse nine was abide in his love. How do I do that? Well, I cling to his unconditional love knowing that it's not dependent upon my love for him, my performance for him, but just based on his love for me. But it's also by abiding and keeping his commands, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Just stay true to what you know. Keep obeying the last thing that he told you. That's the only way you can be patient and persevere through this pruning process. You are called to be faithful you're not called to be fruitful. Let him produce the fruit. 
You leave the results up to him as you remain faithful to obey his commands. And then finally, find Jesus' joy knowing that God can redeem pain. Find Jesus' joy knowing God can redeem your pain. I don't want you to miss the, the last verse of this section that we just talked about in verse 11. Because Jesus, in talking about this pruning process and obeying and this hard stuff, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Or that word full can also mean complete or it can mean overflowing. I've told these things to you so that your joy may be full. I want to tell you, Jesus, the word joy in John, the Gospel of John, is only used one other time before here. And it's used in John chapter 3, verse 29, when John the Baptist, John the baptizer, is talking about how Jesus has come. And now that he's seen Jesus, his joy is full or complete. He is now seen and fellowshiped with the Savior, the Messiah, the one he had waited for. This is the next time that joy is mentioned, that Jesus wants his joy in us to be complete. Now, as Jesus gets closer to the cross, in John chapter 15, 16, and 17, he mentions joy seven times. The closer he gets to being pruned for our sake so that he could cleanse us and connect us to him, the more joy he has. Why? Because it's the more fruit he will see. It's the fellowship with the Father that he looks forward to. And he says, this is the point. You see, the point is is nothing here. This world has everything to offer and it has nothing for us. And he says, I'm telling you this, that I can redeem the pain of your life and I can bring fruit that far outlasts anything that you can plug into and you think will give you a quick spark. He is pouring his life into you so that you can bear his fruit. Faithfulness is up to you that we would remain in him because it's not about what we do for him. It's about what he does for us, in us, and through us. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I thank you for just this incredible, revolutionary truth that what you want to see in our lives, you don't ask us to manufacture on our own, but you simply ask us to cling to you, to let you work in and through us, to yield our lives to you. Lord, we need to connect to you. Forgive me when my heart wanders. Lord, I I, I need you. I need you to solidify the bond that we have. I need to remain in your love. I need to see those clear steps forward that you enable me to take by the power of your Holy Spirit to obey your commands so that your joy may be in each one of us, that it may be full and it may be complete. Help us to cling to you in Jesus' name, amen.